Thanks for joining us and welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. In this episode, we sit down with the editor of Recording Magazine, Paul Vanuk Jr. Paul tells us how he got started in pro audio, learning to record with local bands and collecting recording equipment. As an early adopter of the digital format, he shares insights on the transition from analog and how he stays on the cutting edge of gear technology, a practice which landed him a gig writing for Recording Magazine. All of that and a whole lot more on this episode of the Focus Right Pro podcast. Thanks everybody for joining and welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. I'm here with my colleague Dan Hughley and Paul Vanuk, the editor of Recording Magazine. How's it going, Paul? Good. How are you doing, Tom? Hi, Dan. I'm hey, doing well. Thank what? you for joining us today. Great to be here. Well, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, how did you first start getting involved with audio? Okay. Well, uh, I'll start off. My name is uh, Paul Vanuk Jr. As you said, I'm the editor of Recording Magazine. I've got uh, one wife, three kids, one granddaughter, and three cats. My wife will tell you that I probably love the cats more than any of the rest of them, although my granddaughter's a close close second. No, I, um, I was a music fan from a really young age, and I know a lot of people will say that, but I, I can actually, my earliest musical memories are probably like when I was five or six like actually putting on albums and getting into it and listening to it. I think a lot of that was due to my mom, who was a huge music fan. And she also at that time worked at a radio station. So she wasn't a DJ or anything. She just, she was like a, you know, the assistant to the station manager. But when I was like six, seven, eight years old, I used to get to go to the the station with her and I used to get to sit in the in the booth and watch the DJs and you know watch them spin the records and talk on air and a couple times they'd be cool and be like hey we've got uh, young uh, Paul Vanuk in the studio here today what would you like to hear you know and I'd get to talk on the air for a second and pick a record and most often I would pick Kiss which was not on their playlist which I know would it, you know annoy them so they'd try to pick <laughs> the most innocuous Kiss song probably you know rock and roll all night and party every day so then as a birthday present again I, I think seven eight or nine somewhere in there I got to write three radio commercials you know fake ones but I got to write three radio commercials and I got to go into the production booth and record them so you know watching the engineer work the board and edit the tape and you know, having the headphones on and the microphones, I, I'm sure that was a real early kind of like, Ooh, oh, I, I like this. And so I always wanted to be a DJ and still kind of do. I'm like, that'd be a cool job. Um, you know, but terrestrial radio is kind of disappearing, but so went from that to, uh, at home, I started making my own radio shows and commercials. You know, I'd read comic book and kind of turn them into a radio play kind of thing. And even eventually that led to recording my own songs, you know, very, archaically on a guitar and beating on coffee cans and that kind of stuff. But I had, I don't know if you guys remember that, but I had this all in one stereo, Oh yeah, you know, back, back when you, you know, oh, yeah. like go to JC Penny and you, you know, my, I always <laughs> wanted like a cool stereo system, but my parents would be like, for Christmas, we got you this, you know, stereo and the speakers were like little Dixie cup speakers. And, you know, but the cool thing is, is the all in one stereo had two cassette decks. And if you jammed in the buttons in the right way, you could do, you know, sound on sound from one cassette to the other while having the, you know, those little two prong microphones that you'd plug in and they had a little on off switch, but you could overdub onto the cassettes as they went back and forth. So that was kind of my first DIY experience of recording. And then once I got to high school, I, I got into bands and uh, uh, the drummer had a Yamaha MTX four track cassette. And so I kind of volunteered myself to be the guy to actually 
engineer and record nice. all of our recordings of our, you know, my punk band yeah. in high school. And we used to have a, uh, it was a PV, like a five, I don't know, it was like a five or seven channel PA head. And I don't know why the odd number, but it was a mono PA head. But what we would do is we would use this live powered PA head and record all the drums and maybe like the bass at the same time. And we would send those to one track of the cassette four track. And then, you know, we would overdub from there, you know, from that. And so that was kind of my early entry into a love of recording and recording technology. And, you know, I was even such a dork that when I was a kid, when other friends of mine were, you know, building rocket ships and castles with their Legos, I was actually building like concert stages and fake <laughs> recording awesome. studios, you know, so, so, cool. so as I, I mean, it sounds like that situation of just being interested in music in general and then getting interested in the actual recording process was kind of natural for you. Mm -hmm. Like, when did it start occurring to you that you could actually make a living doing this kind of thing? Like, is, is that something that you realized early on or last Thursday? <laughs> no, uh, you can make a living at this. No, um, uh, it, it kind of just happened it was it, i think it's it's one of those things where when you love something you know there there are kind of people that do something as a hobby and dream about it and then there are other people that just love it so they put themselves into positions mm -hmm. where you know something can be successful yeah. and, and that sounds all high and mighty it's not meant to it's just i i was that single-minded and i still am i i just my hobby when i'm not recording music is collecting, cataloging, and listening to music. I mean, I, I have this insatiable need for new input all the time. And that's both in, in the music world, that's gear. And in my personal life, my hobby is collecting music. You know, if I panned my camera over, you, I've got tons. I still buy, you know, CDs every week. I still buy box sets. I still like physical media. Mm -hmm. I like books. I only read biographies of famous artists and musicians. It's, you know, a very addictive hobby for me. So, you know, so it's more a matter of you just realizing like, this is the life you want and you're just doing it yep. and going for it. Yep. And however, and there was, there was a romanticism to it to me too. Like when I, I mean, for me, musically, everything begins and ends with the Beatles, oh, yeah. which yep. again, that's not that rare. There's tons of people that will say, Oh, the Beatles were, were it. But I was, you know, became aware of the Beatles, you know, when I was five or six, which would have been like the mid seventies, you know, so obviously they were already broken up, but the Beatles were it. But as I was getting into the Beatles and kiss or REO Speedwagon in high school or pre high school, I was equally interested in the engineering side of it. And I don't know why, but I, I, you know, I learned who George Martin was, you know, pretty much around the same time that I got into the Beatles. And so that for me was the fascinating part was the way their sound evolved, mm. the, the way that they used mm -hmm. the studio. When I learned, you know, even at 10 years old, that Sergeant Pepper was the result of using the studio as an instrument. Yeah. All of that to me was like, wow. So and, and what I meant by putting yourself in positions where you could make a living at music. Of course, everybody wants to has that dream. Oh, I'm going to be in a band and I'm going to be famous and I'm going to tour the world and I'm going to make millions of dollars and have jets and limos. And But the reality was I, as soon as I could, I got a job working at a CD store and I, I actually worked at a music sto a CD store when the transition happened between vinyl to CD when CDs were new and hella expensive <laughs> and vinyl was getting phased out. And I remember working at one of the first stores that only had cassettes and CDs and people thought that was just like, whoa, how is that going to work? 
And then I went from there to managing a musical instrument store. And so, you know, once you do that, well, then you get the employee discount. So suddenly I was able to buy, I could buy gear that my friends couldn't afford because I worked there and I got a discount. (laughs) Very dangerous. In a way, that's kind of, you know, that's what I meant by putting yourself in, into the situations, you know, it's just, that's the industry I wanted to be in. And so I've always been in that industry. And it's, it's kind of like this cycle too, sort of like. I used to work at an audio reseller and just having, which I'm sure you get this a lot as an editor and someone who's reviewing gear all the time. You're just constantly being told about this new, exciting, creative tool. And all of them are so awesome that it's easy to just have this never ending list of things that like, you know, you're going to get a discount on it. And it's just like, oh man, you just get more and more excited about the industry every day with that. And the other cool thing, I so I worked at one of the very first music arounds that ever opened. And so it was like one of the first 10 in the country. And I was hired as the manager to, to open the store. The owner was like, well, I'm not going to work the store. I'm going to buy the <laughs> store and own the store, but you're nice. going to run it kind of thing. And what was great and what I miss even now sometimes about working at music around is being a used store. You never knew what was going to come through the door that day. You know, so somebody could walk in with a vintage Les Paul, even though I wasn't a guitar player, or or somebody could walk in with a really cool studio mic. You know, I remember the first time I saw an Electro Voice RE20. I'm like, what the heck is that? That's the weirdest freaking looking (laughs) mic I've ever seen in my life. It didn't look like a Shure SM57 or a typical large diaphragm mic. It was long and weird. And I remember buying it because everybody told me to buy it. And I took it and I tried using it on stage and it sucked. For stage, on stage, yeah. I got to qualify that because now I, I love the mic and I, but it wasn't a good choice as an instrument mic on stage, you know? So you kind of, that informs your taste or your, your knowledge, like, oh, don't like this on stage. What a bad mic until you get one years later and learn the right use for it. Mm-hmm. So you work in a music store and throughout that process, you, you start taking in some of this used gear and stuff and just started getting your hands on it, trying things out, breaking things, seeing what works and what doesn't. Was there like a, an opportunity that came up that you just kind of dove into that side of things? Like you, you really got into the engineering and gear side from just a sales spot or a slow evolution, which just kind of led to where you're at now? I I think the, the weird thing for me is it's all parallel. And what I mean by that is the, the way that I one thing led to another, like very, very literally mm-hmm. with my musical journey. So in when I was in high school, I like pre music store days uh, when I was in high school, of course, I ended up in I started off in a punk band because that was about all I was qualified to play. I never I tried guitar lessons. I own a guitar. I can't play a guitar. I'm not a guitar player. Stringed instruments in me just never got <laughs> along. So I, I was in a band and we were a punk band and pretty soon that evolved and you know all of my bands were the same members different band like always contained one or two guys from the previous band but it became a new band and suddenly we became more hard rock yeah we we went from you know punk rock to pseudo metal to hard rock to prog rock you know where we weren't prog rock in the sense of like a a genesis or a rush or a king crimson although i i would have loved that but we were like let's do songs that are 20 minutes <laughs> long with 15 yeah, parts. Yeah. and and at the time that was not cool so you know we had trouble getting gigs but anyway what happened with that was i met uh, a guitarist in college christopher short who became kind of one of my closest friends and musical partners of like over 20 years now 
And as our bands disintegrated around us, we eventually started just being a duo. And he was really into uh, avant-garde ambient and electronic music and things like early Tangerine Dream and Brian Eno and John Cage and, and all that kind of stuff. And so he was doing a lot of guitar looping with like long mm. delays. And so using his guitar, a lot of times you wouldn't know you were listening to the guitar. It was like Robert Fripp. You'd think, is that a synth? And so then I kind of picked up synths. Again, I'm, I'm a synth player more than a keyboard player. I don't really, I can't really sit down and play a Miles Davis song or, uh, you know, Dave Brubeck or something or somebody else's song, but I can kind of soundscape yeah. on, on a synth. Yeah. And we started doing that live in coffee shops with just like live looping. And then we would record it live. And I remember when we got, we went to a store and we rented an early like dat Sony dat Walkman and it blew my mind. Because it was what we were hearing on playback. You know, I was used to four-track cassettes, which were hissy and noisy. Yep. And, you know, the more that you'd record over them, they'd saturate. This was, you'd go home, hook it up to your stereo and be like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we just played. And it sounds exactly the same. And, you know, did, so I always tell people, I am a child of the digital age. I started, you know, with analog cassette, but I went right to digital recording as soon as you could. And so we started you know, recording every performance that we ever did on DAT. And occasionally we'd invite a percussionist or a sax player. And it was, again, it was this weird conglomeration of avant-garde pseudo jazz got lumped into the new age category in music stores kind of thing in the early nineties, but really it evolved into ambient music. And that I was doing that as I worked at the music store. So pretty soon after we went from just recording on DAT, one of our friends got a computer and this was in the age where at the time Pro Tools dominated the market and you had to have a mm -hmm. Mac, but slowly other companies were developing DAWs for PCs. And, you know, I remember when we got our first one gig hard drive, we thought, wow, <laughs> what are we going to do with all that space? And, you know, and, you know, but we got into transferring our DATs into the yep. computer and then we would manipulate them and, mm, and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Well, then as soon as I could, working at the music store, I was able to use my discount and buy an ADAT and Ooh. a Mackie 1604 mixer. And suddenly I could multi-track digital and thought that was the coolest. And then again, from there found a company that was making the, there was a company called Frontier Audio and they made the world's first eight channel, you know, now ADAT cards are everywhere, you know, being able to add eight channels of expansion onto an audio interface over ADAT, that's no big deal anymore. You know, I mean, that's easy. Every interface, not every, but most interfaces have an ADAT, you know, expansion port, you know, once you get above like the $500 range. Back then it was like, whoa, I can now transfer eight channels of digital into my computer and I can mix them further, you know? And so working at the music store is what kind of what was the pushed that as far as mixing in the box at that point, what did that look like? I mean, there had to have been a pretty minuscule amount of plug-in companies and stuff oh. out there. Yeah. Uh, I did a podcast yesterday with a, with a sound designer who does like modern day Foley and modern day sound design for films. And we were kind of talking about that is there was a time people don't remember it. Plugins didn't really exist beyond... The plugins that, you know, I, I remember we started off, we were using an early version of Cakewalk when it was still Cakewalk, like pre-Sonar, mm -hmm. it was Cakewalk. And it was more mm -hmm. of a MIDI program that just happened 
to add some digital audio at one point. And then, you know, we were using SoundForge, you know, was like the PC based two track editor. And they all had some plugins built in. You know, they didn't call them plugins at the time. It was just an effect or a process. And so you could Mm -hmm. time stretch or you could add a by today's standards, a very primitive reverb and you could EQ things, but it wasn't in real time. I mean, you would have to, you could preview, you know, you you would, you would pull up the plugin and you would put your settings and you could hit the preview button and it would do like a little like 10 second preview of what it'll sound like, you know, it would buffer it and stop, but then you'd have to hit enter and then literally go get lunch. Oh my God. Two hours later. (laughs) And then you'd come back and, and be like, Oh, well that wasn't it. And so you'd undo, which Strangely, undo is instantaneous, but to actually process it took another hour. And yeah, so we we got into very early computer manipulation, which kind of so again, in in the parallelism or the, the direct path of my career, I started to get into sound design and ambient music and electronic music kind of really goes hand in hand with that because you get a chance to whether you're using a synthesizer or uh, recording software you can play with sounds and create sounds that don't exist in reality and and things like that and we used to take microphones and you know record the sound of bbs falling into the under the top of a drum head and then you'd pit oh, you'd pitch wow. it down and make it sound like water or dinosaurs walking and add a, a weird reverb or a chorus and that kind of stuff and that led to me doing sound design getting hired by so we by that point we'd we'd done a couple albums on some labels in canada and out of portland oregon and a guy who worked at Sonic Foundry at the time, which then became Sony, heard our stuff and said, oh, I really love this kind of music. And would you like to do some sound design libraries for us? And that led not only to us doing our own sound design libraries, but then I became one of his freelance engineers who oh, rad. he would hire me to cut up, you know, somebody else would record a guitar library. And he's mm-hmm. like, OK, now I want you to process this through your outboard gear and cut up the loops and do the acidization at the time it was for Sony Acid which is now I think owned by Magix, you know, so I, I used to do a lot of loop library, like the back end sound design for that kind of stuff. And so that really built my studio. So once I started doing that, suddenly now I've moved from working at a music store to, you know, being a freelancer for an actual company in the industry, making money, doing something musical. And I was able to then, because that was something I was doing in my spare time aside from my day job, I was able to take that money and I would, you know, that was my best advice was I I took the money I made doing sound design for Sony and basically put it in the bank. And then when I had enough saved up, I would buy a new piece of gear and then buy a new mic. And so I always call my studio, the studio that Sony built because, you know, in the literal sense, (laughs) because doing these libraries for, you know, sound design work for 10 years. And eventually I worked my way up to, they would basically say, okay, give us a budget. And I would get a budget to fly I did an ethnic library where I got to fly in musicians from around the country to record African instruments and Arabic instruments and, and things like that, and then cut that up and turn it into a, so cool. a sound design library and kind of stuff like that. But then the other weird thing is, is again, in the music field, when I stopped working at the music store, I moved on to working as the tech director of a church. And so there again, every day, my life consists of doing audio mixing a live band, you know, anywhere from, you know, one to three days a week at rehearsals and extra events. And then, you know, Sunday morning services. And in a way it's kind of a, you know, doing live sound, but I'm spoiled because I'm always doing live live sound in the same space. So after 18 years, I got to really know the space and know the Mm -hmm. musicians and I designed the system and 
my, my one bit of advice for a lot of young audio engineers is if you can find a way to learn to do live audio, whether it's in a club or there's always churches looking for somebody to help them out or a, a venue yeah. somewhere, because it actually teaches you how to record and react or mix live musicians in the moment. So if the drums are too loud, you got to adjust. And if a singer comes in too loud, you have to adjust. Yep. And if the guitar player is too quiet, you have to adjust. You have to react instantly to make sure that the audience isn't aware of these little mistakes for too long. I like that you suggested that a guitar player might be too low because that would never happen. I know. I know. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> and not in my experience. Yeah. So anyway, doing that then led to strangely writing for the magazine. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit how that came about. Like, uh, how did you come across that opportunity? How did I end up at Recording Magazine? So I, I was hanging out being, a, again, as a synth guy, as a ambient musician, I, of course, fell in love with synth stores, you know, where mm -hmm. basically I would I would hang out. We, there was a, a store called Nova Music, which was based in Milwaukee, which is where I am. And somehow became like one of the national for like in the early 90s. They were like, I'm sorry, in the early 2000s, they were one of the synth destinations for if you wanted, you know, Dave Smith synths or or Moog or, you know, any of the the early kind of analog synth resurgence. And they even had like a little lounge where you could just hang out. And uh, I met one of the employees there, uh, Darwin Gross. And uh, one time I was reading through a copy of Recording Magazine because I loved all the magazines, you know, uh, and, and I, I collected all of them because I was just into learning how to record, you know, but mm -hmm. everything from keyboard to, you know, the, mm -hmm. the recording mags and stuff. And I was reading through Recording Magazine and I saw Darwin's name and I went, dude, you write for this magazine, which for me, I'm like, wow, that's the coolest thing ever. You're published. You know, people care about what you think. And so I bugged the heck out of him to put me in touch with the <laughs> then associate editor and again, the way this all works very weirdly is the associate editor turns out he did electronic ambient music and he put together festivals around the country. And so mm -hmm. I used to go to I started going to the NAM show when I worked at the music store. But then I kept going to the NAM show every year just as a sound designer, because I would go there to meet with M Audio and some of the sample library companies and, and basically try to sell yourself. Hey, I've got this new sound design labor. Do you want to buy it and put it out? You know? So I met him at one of the, uh, the NAM shows and again, found out that we both do the same kind of ambient music and knew a lot of the same people. And he was putting together mm -hmm. a festival, this, uh, different skies festival that was out in the Arizona desert. And I'm like, sure, I'll do that. And so went to that, got to know him. And about a year later, finally worked my way up to begging him to let me do my first, very, very first gear review which was the Eventide Eclipse. And I, I did that gear review. And the then editor who was above him read the review and edited it and said, wow, this guy sucks. He's never going to write for us ever again. Oh, wait, and, is, uh, that true, is that a true, true story? True story, yeah. Oh because I, I came from a creative writing background in college. And so I used a lot of flowery language no, and yes. a lot of emotion. Yeah, of and this is what I think. And this is, you know, you, as a reviewer, your first time ever, you try to make yourself sound smart and you try to make yourself sound knowledgeable and cool and all of those things. Yeah. And he, of course, stripped all of that out of the final <laughs> review. And that was my first experience that, oh, an editor actually changes, you know, can rearrange things because that's their job. So anyway, he said I would never write for the magazine again. I was crushed. And about six months later, Blue, I remember this story. So Blue, a microphone company, had put out this mic called the Blue Ball. And oh, yeah. again, questionable choice of product name <laughs> um, still, still to this day. Yeah. And I 
you couldn't get them. It was so popular. It was the world's first kind of dynamic, phantom-powered dynamic mic. And Mm -hmm. you couldn't get them. And I had one because, you know, with my connections still, even though I didn't work at the music store anymore, I knew somebody, they hooked me up with one. And he's like, oh, well, hey, guess what? Vanuk's got one, so maybe we should give him another chance. And so I got to review it. And then I went from writing one review every six months to, you know, one review every month to six reviews a month to becoming the technical consultant to then becoming the mm-hmm. technical editor to now two years ago, they said, hey, how would you like to be the editor? So I, I literally yeah. flip flopped my jobs. I went from being a full time tech director of a church and a part time writer for the magazine to being the full-time editor of the magazine. And I still work like 10 hours a week at the church to help them out on rehearsals and Sundays nice. and stuff. And and you have the job of the person who told you you'd never write for them again. Yes. Congratulations on yes. that. I love it. I love those <laughs> types of stories. And he, and he did, you know, it was really cool because when I got the job, he hadn't been with the magazine for about five years. And he, it, it actually meant a lot when he sent me an email and said, Hey man, they, they picked a great guy and he was really, you know, kind of proud. And I will say, you know, publicly that, you know, Lorenz Richner really was a great mentor to me learning mm-hmm. how to edit a magazine and write as was then his replacement, Mike Metley. I learned a lot from those guys of kind of the ins and outs of, of that. Yeah. And, you know, it's all part of it. You know, you were young. That was the first time you tried doing something like that. So it's, you know, you have to look back and say, how would you have read it if you were the editor and that came across your desk? Yeah. So that's really cool that it all kind of flipped around the way that it did. You know, on that note, as the editor, how are you staying on the cutting edge of of all the audio technologies and companies that are coming out now? Are people just seeking you out or are you still going out and trying to find these stories? Yes, no, it's, it, it, it is. It's both. It's I mean, I get I think maybe that's the part about being the editor that shocked me the most is I probably get like 200 emails a day. And I mean, now a lot of them are just complete, you know, I mean, every PR agent has a band that they want me to check out and interview. And there's tons of new companies with new products. But there we do get a ton of, you know, brand new companies saying, hey, we have this new plug in, this new microphone, this new interface, you know, check us out. There are other companies that I have to chase that will remain nameless, but you know who you are. Now, um, they're, they're, I'm, you sorry. Know, I'm sorry. No, Paul. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know? And so there and part of it's just when something's really popular, you know, one of the things you, you run up against as a as a magazine is I want to review this. But at the same time, if they're selling them already and they're selling out, well, I don't expect them to pull stock and, you know, send, you know, I mean, it's that catch 22. So staying on the cutting edge, that's an entirely different question only because I'm a gear fanatic. I mean, I mm-hmm. still, the, the weird thing is, is I still, you know, I've probably reviewed, this sounds weird to say, but somewhere between seven and 900 pieces of gear in my life. Good God. Just kind of doing the, doing the rough <laughs> math. And I still love it. I still get it. You know, there are some people that when they go to Nam, they're like, oh, we're at Nam again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't wait. We're going to Nam. I'm going to see what's new and what's exciting. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I and I love those years when there's when there, you know, there's some years where it's just like, OK, this is just a, a placeholder year. And then there's other years where it's like new things are are hitting. And so that's exciting. The hard part about being on the cutting edge is I also have a studio where I record bands and record people and I need my studio up and running. And sometimes being on the cutting edge and being up and running are two different things because, you know, the the one thing that they always say, never install new software or a new DAW or a new interface or update in the middle of a session or middle of a project. 
Right. You know, so that's the hard part is I, I need to know that stuff and I need to be aware of that stuff. But at the same time, I also need to have a functioning working studio. So what I kind of do now is I, I have a home editing setup, you know, which is where I am now, which, you know, I've got a set of, you know, professional studio monitors and a fairly powerful computer and good audio interfaces at home. And that's kind of my sandbox, if you will. That's where I can trial run software updates and new plugins before they make yeah. the move to my actual studio and I know that they're going to work. Now that's with software and stuff like that. When it's hardware, that'll go right to the studio and, you know, get put right to use. Nice. On that note, you said you were a, a very early adopter of digital, but I do notice that you have a fair amount of uh, analog <laughs> gear. So where are we? Have we, uh, where have we landed at this point? You must have looked at pictures of my studio. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to, you know, it's uh, part of the job. I just get to geek I, out on the gear that other people have. <laughs> you know, I, I started, even though I'm a child of digital and I love digital, I love digital editing. I love what you can do in a computer. And as a sound designer, I loved the fact that you could take anything you recorded well and then warp the crap out of it in a DAW or in an effects processor or, or whatever. But being a fan of the Beatles and, you know, a lot of 60s music and jazz and, and, and all that. I love old school recording technology. Again, it's kind of, you know, we we were talking earlier before we started the recording about the fact that both you and I love the like the AEA, you know, the R44C. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a brilliant mic. Yep. And for all intents and purposes, that's vintage technology, you know, ribbon, yep, you know, the old but. RCA. I could do yeah. I could do a full album with just that and a nice tube mic pre and and be completely happy. And so I love analog gear. I am if you look at my photos of my studio, you'll see a lot of Chandler gear. And I love first of all, it starts with my love of the Beatles. But what I like, too, is is Wade Gokey from Chandler has taken kind of this old Abbey Road technology, but he's kind of updated it. So there's these little modern twists that he puts into it to make it relevant for today but still have the sound of way back when so i love it you know but if if you look closely at pictures of my studio i've kind of got two chains i've got the really super clean millennia media pristine chain and i've got you know solid state mics that kind of match that level of cleanliness and then it, on the other hand i've got you know the tube gear and nice. you know I'm, I'm a big fan of the the chandler tg2 which is kind of this solid state but really kind of classic punchy abbey road beatles sound like the abbey road the album and one of my favorite early things was you know i would see people on the gear forums always saying things like oh well you know the tg2 is, is so colored it's great for recording guitar and i'm like really i've done folk albums with it i've done classical albums you know trios with it i've done jazz albums with it a, a mike pre doesn't care you know but i right. love the, the kind of analog vibe i love analog compressors that sounded almost really emphatic. Like I love analog. Com I, I love analog compressors. <laughs> I, I love I the LA two A is is the compressor that taught me how to use compression. Which again, wow, my first compressor one. was the Alesis thirty six thirty, which is the worst compressor to ever try to learn compression on, <laughs> because it's you know it had like sixteen controls. I'm exaggerating, but it, it had everything. It was like that was its whole point was to be this compressor that had choices of your ratios and knees and and the attack and the release and and all this stuff and when I got the LA-2A, it's, you know, two knobs, it's in and compress and out, you know, it's input and output. Yeah. And suddenly I went, great. Oh, compression makes sense. I, I shove sound yeah. into the, into the threshold in the knee and it clamps down on it. And then I take the other knob and decide on what my 
output level is going to be. And so, you know, went from mm-hmm. that to an 1176 and, you know, suddenly now you're adding an attack and release and it, it became this cool gradual things. But I, I love analog compression for even just shaping sounds, you know, tonally, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. without EQ. I do have a lot of outboard EQs. Like a lot of people now, I've switched mainly to mixing with EQ in the box though. And that's not because I don't like the analog hardware. It's more that clients don't have the patience to, when they say, oh, I'd like to recall this song, they want an instantaneous recall. They don't want me to take 20 minutes to go, okay, hold on, let me get out all the recall sheets and I'll repatch everything in. And I think this, you know, I I marked down that the EQ is on number two, but was it, did it get bumped a little bit? I don't, it's just really finicky. So I'll, I'll use EQ on the way in, but I won't really mix through it anymore, Mm. which is really a long-winded way of saying why. I I was just going to ask, not to go off on a tangent here, but have you reviewed any of the uh, West Audio stuff? It's like a remote controllable analog gear. I haven't haven't reviewed the West Audio stuff, but I have reviewed some of the remote control stuff. Uh, There's a company called BetterMaker, and they make some remote control. They they had some 500 series stuff, but now they're I think they've done all just rack stuff, but I, I actually have one of their compressors, their bus compressor, and I love it. I mean, first of all, it sounds great. It's kind of the SSL-ish kind of VCA sound, but what I love about it is the fact that it's controlled with a plug-in in my DAW. So yeah. I, I'm able to do a session and save that session, and then when I come back and if a client wants to hear it, I just pull it up and boom, yeah. it's the true it. analog piece, but it's oh. recallable. So that's part of that cutting edge of technology that didn't exist years ago. And so I, I think more companies, or I'd like to see more companies move towards that, especially, I mean, with Same. EQs, I would be all over that being, like I said, I love analog EQs, you know, versus in the box mm-hmm. EQ, but I would love that remote control option. Yeah. Again, not to uh, go off in the weeds. But, no, please um, do. You should check them out. Yeah, they, they do have, they have a Poltec style EQ and then they have, uh, the SSL VCA style compressor and 1176 style compressor. Then they have like a, a 500 series chassis that everything sits in and a USB cable connects to control them. Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting stuff. And I love the better maker stuff too. And I'm hoping that, like you said, more and more manufacturers start doing that. Like dig, if you will, the picture, if say Focusrite could take the <laughs> red three compressor. Yes. And make a, an analog uh, hardware version, but one that actually had remote control have you digitally. Been listening to me uh, <laughs> pleading with the product team here. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Uh, I, I wish I, I wish I knew what that looked like on the roadmap, but uh, that's not something that I've seen. I want to take you back a little bit uh, to when you were just getting started, Paul. What did the audio industry look like? Uh, you know, when you know you had a great start. Like Tom said, you were an earlier, an early adopter of digital. But what did the industry look like? I imagine it was a very analog world when you first started, and and then how did it evolve from your perspective? It it, it was, and you know, I think Tom already hit on it earlier when, when he asked about plugins. You know, so on one hand, plugins were in their infancy. I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, digital reverbs flat out sucked. I mean, there was. I mean, and really, it's only been in about the past five years or so where yeah. I felt comfortable you know, selling off my, my hardware digital reverbs and going, whoa, they're really nailing this in the computer where you can actually go, that's a killer reverb, not just a placeholder. Yeah. So that was a, that was a big change as plugins grew and even just digital, the digital, digital processing and the sound. And, and now that we're at kind of 32 bit internal processing, digital sounds great. And so analog emulation mm-hmm. has come light years. You know, it used to be where you'd compare a hardware 
analog compressor or EQ to the plug-in and you'd always be like, oh, I can tell the difference. There's a little bit more air and there's, you know, what you're really hearing is the unpredictability of how you hooked it up kind, you know, a lot of times or what Mm. converters you're using (laughs) or, you know, the way it reacts just to, you know, an analog signal versus a digital signal in the box. But if you can kind of level match them, a lot of these companies have gotten really close to where the average listener, the person buying the album is not going to hear or know that you used a real LA-2A or a plug-in LA-2A. And, and I say that as somebody who loves the hardware and would love to, you know, be the get off my lawn guy <laughs> going, wow, this has gotten close. The other thing that's changed now is like digital modeling. You know, mic modeling used to be a curiosity. Now it's viable. I mean, there are, you know, Slate and Townsend and Antelope and a couple others are doing like mic modeling where it's like, yeah, this can work, you know, and if I was just starting out, it makes sense to kind of maybe have one mic that can mimic a lot of others. But talking about mics, I think that's the biggest change I've seen in the 18 years of being at the magazine and, and just being in audio myself is it used to be that affordable budget level gear, you know, in the early 2000s always came with a disclaimer. You know, it was like, oh, well, this is a low cost import microphone, which means it's going to be really bright and really tizzy and, you know, not going to sound good, but it's okay for the price. And now we've got, you know, it was the same thing with interfaces. It was the same thing with compressors or or budget mixers. You know, they were good enough for now. You know, they were good Mm -hmm. enough to get your feet wet, but you could always hear the quality. Now, you know, I always tell people that the, the gear is not a problem. You know, the gear should, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're using, I mean, there are $200 interfaces that sound killer and you guys know which one I'm talking about. Um, the, (laughs) you know, and, and there are $2,000, $3,000 interfaces that sound killer, but the entry level gear that we have now, I'm jealous of, I mean, I wish, I mean, I, when I review a $200 mic that blows my mind or I'm like, wow, this sounds really good. I'm kind of jealous. I'm like, man, I wish I would have had this when I was first starting out. Yeah. You know, but it it's we're truly living in this golden age of audio production right now, especially for people starting out where gear is just so affordable, but like you said, we've come such a long way in manufacturing that the stuff you can get is pretty great quality for that price. And there's just an abundance of educational content out there now for people to learn how to use it all. It's just truly awesome to see that evolution over the last 10 or 15 years. And the cool thing is, is again, you can buy an entry level $150 mic or $200 mic in a, in a $150 interface just to get started. Yep. And so you can actually have that education. You don't have mm-hmm. to go somewhere and pay money to play with or try, you know, it's like, oh, well, you can come to our, our school, which again, schools are great or go to a sco- studio and rent time to play with this high end gear or rent it from a store or whatever. You can actually get something to learn mic technique and mic placement. And you can now buy entry-level compressors that are similar and based on, you know, vintage compressors. So you can learn how they work and you can do it at a fraction of the price. So it is, it really is. And and again, it's easy to get snobby and be like, oh, well, they're nothing like the real thing. In, In a way that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if this budget piece is as good as this expensive piece. You know, in terms of like being a clone, I almost feel like the clone wars or the clone days hopefully are coming to an end because companies are starting to make microphones that sound like themselves or interfaces that sound like themselves, you know, and so you can just get it and learn, learn the thing that you bought and learn 
learn everything it can do, and then also learn what it can't do. And also the the incremental gains, you know, even from something that's, well, I, I myself was surprised as a, a person who learned completely in the box. I came from live sound and whenever I went into recording, it was just with plugins and stuff like that. But eventually I picked up the Warm Audio 1176 clone and I was just, I was kind of blown away by the difference I could hear for the price compared to most of the plugins that I was using. It just made me think of like that investment versus thousands of thousands of dollars. I felt like I got a lot out of it for that. I had one more question for you, Paul. Uh, you kind of alluded to speaking to um, someone on the podcast yesterday. Tell us a little bit more about the recording podcast and the catalyst for launching it. <laughs> and uh, that, w- that was a little bit of a joke. Uh, you were, I believe you were threatened by my boss to or something to start the podcast. But I'm really glad to see that you do. And it just launched this year. Uh, tell us a little bit more about who your guests have been and who you got lined up. So as Dan joked about, I have certain friends in the industry that, you know, are very wise. And when they speak, you listen. And, uh, and, and Hannah is one of those. And this, this was probably about four years ago. So again, it still took us a little bit of time to actually get in gear. But, you know, I joke now, hey, recording's got a podcast, you know, which is awesome. Welcome to 2012. But it, it is a thing. And, you know, again, for me, podcasts. Like I said, I always wanted to be a DJ. So what is a podcast really? It's a modern day radio show, you, your, you know? Yeah. Um, you got your radio show now. Yeah. And, and, I love and it. so our, our podcast, even, you know, we've just uh, finished our fourth episode last night and it'll be coming out probably next week on all of the, the streaming services. And um, basically uh, what we kind of are doing is, is a little bit like what we're doing here, which is rather than just having one guest, we're doing a little bit of a round table discussion mm-hmm. and we're even doing fun things like pairing the, the person, you know, an audio engineer or a musician with a company that they use and mm-hmm. kind of getting a little bit of an insight about the, the company and then getting uh, an insight into that, how that person works. And so for instance, we have a podcast with uh, Jakir King. And we also then had Sterling Doak, who is the head of Gibson Brands, who basically, uh, but he was, he was there representing KRK speakers and Sterling is a huge supporter of KRK. And so we, we talked first of all about KRK, the company and, and kind of where they've been, where they're going, what they offer. And then Jakir talked about how he uses KRK, but he also talked about, you know, in relation to how he uses them alongside his more expensive monitors and his monitor controllers and his philosophies for, for mixing. And he mixes completely in the box now once he, he records through all this cool analog gear, but once he gets in the box, he stays there, which is becoming a theme that I'm hearing more and more, especially mm-hmm. from established engineers like Jakir, who really, if he wanted to, he could mix anywhere he wanted on yeah. whatever gear he wanted. Yep. Uh, yeah. One of my, my favorite podcasts i got a chance we got a chance to spend um about an hour and a half with eddie kramer and uh what was really cool about that was we kind of did that in conjunction with our drum issue and so rather than talking about Mm. you know tell me about Jimi hendrix we we talked to him about all of the the cool drum recording that he's done throughout the years and he also did a a drum library it's kind of a virtual instrument with tune track so he's got his own tune track uh, Legends of Rock, uh, mm, Tune Track, very cool library, and so we we kind of talked about the drums that he picked for that, and we focused in on a lot of the advances in in drumming from the time that he started. You know, because he started back in the days when you know recording was mono, and you had one mic on a drum kit, or maybe the drum kit was in the room with 
you know, everybody else yeah. and, and just kind yeah. of, you know, being at the cutting edge of moving up through. And we talked about his work with Mitch Mitchell and Charlie Watts and John Bonham. And so that was, oh, and for me, I, I was a big Kiss fan as a kid. So, you know, Peter Chris mm-hmm. and talked about yep. recording Kiss and, you know, so that was, that was really cool for me is to just, you know, spend time talking to him as, as one of my engineering heroes. And, uh, our first podcast that we started off with, it was still kind of a split format. We were, we talked with James Young of Aston about their new element microphone. And then in the second half of the podcast, we talked to uh, Ryan Olyate, who basically did all of the remixing for Tom Petty's uh, Wildflowers and all the rest box set. But one of the things we focused on was the fact that he, he did a five, one Atmos mix. And so what was cool about that is, you know, Five one is one of those things where I think we all know a little bit about five one in that we know it's five speakers. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know you've got a sub and a center and and the four other ones, you know, and then Atmos is more, you know. But we don't, yeah. you know, it's it's the type of thing where I think we aspire to it, but I still don't know a lot of people that are just diving right in and installing Atmos setups at home or or five one setups at home for mixing. It's still kind of in its yeah. infancy, so that's one of those modern technology things. But so what was cool is to talk to an engineer that's doing it and find out what his setup mm-hmm. was and even considerations for five one mixing. You know, when you're mixing something in stereo, well what do you do then when you want to break that out? So we did that. And then the podcast that we finished last night was with uh DPA microphones and Watson Wu, who is a, a sound designer and he was in charge of doing all of the kind of the car sounds for the baby driver movie. And then he does a lot of video oh, game work, which suddenly, suddenly I was cool in my children's eyes. They're like, Oh, all the video games we play, the guy does that, you know? So that was cool. You know, so he really talked, walked us through the fact that, you know, I'm used to sticking a microphone in front of a guitar or a piano. Well, here's a guy that, you know, yeah. when he mics a car, he mics a car, he puts mics in the wheel wells, he puts mics by the door locks, he puts mics in the engine. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so it, it was really cool. So that'll be available in, in two days. So you can, check that out. So the podcasts are cool because it allows us to kind of expand the print magazine, which we're in mm-hmm. our, I'll, I'll do a little plug here. We're in our 33rd or 34th year of publishing the print publication and um, congrats, still going strong on that, which mm-hmm. is awesome because I like my job, but the podcast allows us to expand a little bit, our boundaries even further. Cause you know, you just like you guys, you know, you build what you build and you have a core audience and a core following you know, you, you sit down and roadmap mm-hmm. out, Hey, we're going to design this device. And, you know, and I, I know I, I joked earlier about doing a remote control, you know, red three compressor, but obviously then you, then so you have the marketing cool. guys that come along and go, who's yeah. going to buy this and what's it going to cost us and all, you know, a magazine is, is similar mm-hmm. to that. You, we have a, a core readership that kind of expects a certain topic and a certain way of presenting things. And the reality is, is you only have so many pages a month. So the podcast now allows us to break out of that and move into some of the new, more cutting edge technology things like, you know, five, one and Atmos and, you know, sound design for films and kind of Mm -hmm. just expand it even further in kind of a round table discussion. I like that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Like it's one of those things that you get a really good excuse to talk to some of your heroes and 
you know, editors such as yourself, which is just really nice. I think this is probably one of the longer conversations that we've had Sorry. because most of our interactions are, are, are no, in, in, yeah. I mean that in the most positive way possible because, you know, most of our interactions are, you know, surrounding reviews or, you know, different things, products that are coming up, you know, things like that. But it's a lot of times at a trade show where, you know, you have 12 more people to talk to in the next hour. So it's really nice to, to learn more about you, Paul, uh, as, a, as a person and your history. And it's been very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before we wrap up, let's talk about your review process and, and let us in on that and what goes into that, because that's a really interesting topic. Yeah, cool. The, I think I'll, I'll, I'll go back to when. So as I journeyed up the ladder at Recording Magazine, they made me the technical editor before I became the editor. And I used to joke that I'm the least technical technical editor you'll ever have because I'm I don't know how to solder anything. I am that guy <laughs> that if I do take a microphone apart to see how it's made or a, a piece of gear to see what's on the inside, almost every time I, I either a can't get it back together or I end up with extra parts. You know, I'm like, oh, was this important? Where does this go? So there was always that joke about that. So I'm, I'm more of a person that's more intuitive with gear. I don't have a fear of it. I don't have a fear of computer programs. I'll just dive right in. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for me, reviewing gear is I care more about how it actually sounds in use yeah. rather than how it's made, you know, or its specs, which mm -hmm. I know there, there are now some people out there that are cringing that are like, no, but that's the most important. We need to know the specs of the gear and how it compares and how is it built and where is it made? And the only analogy I can think of when it comes to reviewing gear is you think of a car. When you go to buy a car nowadays, you probably really don't care about where the metalwork was done or where the electrical components came from, where the cloth interior of the seats were made. I mean, some people might, but for the most part, you don't. And when it comes to specs, you might care about what kind of miles per gallon it gets or, you know, its horsepower and how fast it is, you know, from zero to 60 off the line. You know, you, you might care about those things how quiet the ride is. So you might compare a car online and look at this car compared to that car, but it really comes down to you're going to buy a car when you go to the dealership and you get in that car or you see that car in the lot and you go, I love that color and I love that style. And then you get to the dealership and you get in the car and you drive it and you go, Oh, you know, you get out of the car and you're, you're like, Oh man, I, I love everything about this car, but it's not comfortable and I, I can't buy it. You know, yeah. some, there are some people that love Corvettes and I've heard other people go, my gosh, it's the worst car to ever sit in. It's uncomfortable. Gear is kind of the same way. And so when yeah. it comes to reviewing gear, I've of course, being the editor of the magazine, I've heard all of the things you get. Some people out there that get mad when you don't do a negative review. That's a big thing. Oh, this magazine never does a negative review. They don't. Well, that's because there's really no bad gear. And why are you doing and why are you craving a negative review? And so I kind of go back to one of the dangers. This is where I'll put in the plug for why print publications or even digital publications where there's a, a subscriber base or a cost are important because that equals an accountability. And everybody will say, oh, well, but you can just go online and you can find a thousand people that have opinions about gear and they'll tell you whether something, but a lot of it's what I call the Yelp review of gear, you know? So yeah. somebody's like, I bought this microphone and it sounded terrible on my voice. It sucks. Okay. Well, does it, does it really, or it just wasn't the mic for you. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. so that's where, you know, again, I, I, you know, we're very quick to point out the things in life we don't like. And you, another analogy is beer tasting. I'm a beer snob. I love trying different kinds of beers and all the different styles. And Ultimately, mm -hmm. I don't like dark beers. It's not my thing. 
You know, I like the lighter beers. Even now, my tastes are changing. I used to love IPAs. Now I'm a little tired of IPAs. It's gotten to the point where it's like, this is so hoppy, it'll put hair on your chest and change colors. And I just, no, I want to enjoy what I'm drinking. But what I love is when you do a beer flight and you try four to six different beers, there's a difference in not liking a dark beer, but trying a dark beer and going, oh, this is a great version of this porter, even though I don't like it. And it's that way with gear. So whether I like something personally really doesn't matter. Now, I I can say that in a a review. I can say, oh, well, this isn't personally my thing. That's valid. But to slam a piece of gear because I didn't like it, well, that's kind of dumb because I, you know, it's easy to get snobby. Once I've used a $10,000 mic, which I've reviewed $10,000 mics, it's very, of course, a $200 mic is not going to sound as good you know, in terms of specs or build or longevity or, but that doesn't matter because very few people, myself included, can afford a $10,000 mic. So I have to look at the $200 mic and go, is this a good $200 mic? And who's going to buy this $200 mic? Who is this aimed at and what can they do with it? And so that's where you kind of have to remove your tastes out of it and not be so quick to go, you know, I'm always suspicious when you, when you see reviews online that are, this is the greatest thing ever. Or this sucks because both of those are probably somewhat flawed in the reality. So it's more of why is this person reviewing this? Why should I trust them? What experience do they have? And are they, is it balanced? Are they fair? You know, and it's a music is the perfect analogy because all of us have heard somebody who's like, if you're just into metal, you'll hear somebody go, well, rap sucks. Country music sucks. Well, no, it it really doesn't. You actually kind of sound like an idiot when you say that, you know, you might not like it. But you need to be able to listen to it and go, oh, well, that's actually good country music, even though I don't like it. That's mm-hmm. good rap, even though I don't like it. And that is kind of that way with gear, if that makes any yeah. sense. Which is all true, except for country rap, which objectively sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I agree with you, Tom. That's that's a really good way of tying things together, Paul, and the car analogy and also the tastes in music analogy. Because I used to be one of those people like that would say country music sucks. I really have grown to appreciate and like country music because of the musicianship. Uh, But that's not what this is about. I'm just saying your analogy was was really good because there is something for every taste. You know, a $200 mic that sounds good on my voice might sound terrible on your voice, but also decent on Tom's voice or something along those lines. So, uh, but, and it also takes into account the rest of the signal path as well, which is something that you always spell out in your reviews because it's extremely important. You talk about, you know, what interface, what computer and Mm -hmm. your whole signal flow, which is important to the, the sound that you get out of it because someone that has a different chain might get a totally different result than you. Well, even look at converters. I mean, I, I, years ago, again, if, if you bought a $200 converter 10 years ago, it was probably marginal at best. Now, yep. because of our the way that the world works now, especially coming out of a pandemic and everybody, you know, the album that I'm working on right now is the drummer sent me tracks from Nashville and, you know, he recorded through whatever interface he has. And then a singer just sent me tracks and I don't even know what interface she used or what mic. I'm just getting the tracks. And I had a violinist send me tracks that were recorded with a Shure SM57 as the mic and do a, a Scarlett 2i2. And, you know, you take all of that and you just put it in your DAW and you work with it. And you at, at some point you stop caring what the right. source was. It's just does this performance work and is it recorded well enough that I can EQ it or, yep. or make it work in the mix? And, and you move on. And the listener 
is never going to care what converters you use. Now, that said, I'm just as snobby as the rest of them. I I love using, you know, really high end converters. And I love any time I get a chance to review a, a $10,000 mic, I'll actually call people up and tell clients, hey, I got this. You want to come record something, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's awesome. It adds to your data bank of now I know what this sounds like. You know, the first time I heard a real, you know, U67 microphone, I went, oh, yeah, I get it. Mm. You know, I've heard mm-hmm. that sound before. That doesn't mean that I can't record with with lesser things, you know, and you mentioned, right. you know, it goes back to the plugin thing. I love hardware over plugins, but I think I love hardware over plugins because I'm supposed to, you know, it's a learned mm-hmm. response. Well, of course, we know that the real right. the vintage gear has to be better. It probably isn't. But, you know, there's the tactile feel and there's that part of my brain that goes, well, no, I'll I'll. I'll lose all credibility, even with myself, if I suddenly like the plugin. <laughs> God forbid. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yep. Well, Paul, thanks again for, for taking the time today. Thank you guys, man. This, is, this has been cool. Yeah, it was. I really enjoyed it. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, everybody. 